You can have a seat. Thanks for being here. I'm going to grab your Bible. Turn to Psalm 119. So we've been talking about, starting last week, about adding a Jesus filter onto our lives because Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the resurrected Lord, and we are his followers. We believe in his resurrection. So it makes sense then if he's the Lord and we are the followers, if he's the shepherd and and we are the sheep, then we would filter everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say through him, his lordship, his life, his way. And yet what most of us are doing, most of us are, are disconnecting our faith in him and our decisions, the way that we're ordering our lives, the pattern of our lives. You guys know filters. You recognize this filter. It's the super nice one. And you recognize this. It's the cheap one, right? I mean, look, they didn't even pretend that this wasn't a cheap one. It's just a cardboard box with a filter weaved in. This one, however, this is the one that you stare at, you know, at the store because look at it. It's nice and it's thick and it's got the wavy thing, which looks better. I don't know if it is better. It just looks more impressive. And even its name, it's Pure Filter 2000, not Pure Filter 1000 or Pure Filter 1500. It's the Pure Filter 2000. I mean, that just sounds impressive, doesn't it? This is the one that we want to take home with us when we go to the store to replace our filters. But this is the one that we end up with, isn't it? Because, you know, that one is more than $1 and this is $1. And, and you you know, it's not the Pure Filter 2000. It is model number 94420301. It's a three-pack for you know less than what that one costs right there. I, I'm going to frame that. I'm not even going to use it because it's so nice and expensive. You know, this is the one that we end up with, and it's fine because this. You know, even though I can see through this, you know, I can see you through this thing. Even though I can see through it, it's going to catch most of the big stuff. And that's really what we were concerned with. We're concerned about catching the big stuff. And, and so, you know, the big stuff that might harm our air conditioning units, it, it's going to catch it. It's not going to catch everything that that one is going to catch, or at least it, it doesn't appear that it's going to catch everything that one is going to catch because that's the Pure Filter 2000, and this is the, you know, cardboard one. But this is what we settle for. But that's not the kind of filter we're talking about. Well, we're not talking about putting some kind of faith filter on us that you know, catches the big stuff. Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to do? When am I going to transfer? What homes uh, am I going to buy? When is it time to buy a new car? When is it time to have children? How how are we going to raise those children? Those big things, I think a lot of us are filtering those big things through our faith in Jesus, but we're talking about everything. We believe that Jesus is Lord, not just of the big stuff, but of everything. And, you know, we want to connect the dots. We want... All of the decisions that we make to be filtered through our faith in Him. Last week, if you were here, we came around Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says there that we should seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Where is Christ? Where is He right now? He's in heaven. And, and so we said part of the filter, this Jesus filter we're talking about, is heaven. Could I do the things that I'm doing right now? Could I say the things I'm saying right now? Could I, could I watch the things I'm watching right now? Could I think about this person the way I'm thinking right now? Could I do all of that in heaven, in the presence of God? And if I can, if I can't say what I'm saying now in heaven, if I can't watch what I'm watching now in heaven, if I can't do any of that stuff in heaven, then maybe I shouldn't do it on earth. That's the, the filter that we're adding. 
Well, today we're in Psalm 119. We're going to add another layer to that filter. Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. And so each of the sections, um, those stanzas in those sections start with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the section that we're going to be in this morning, starting in verse 59, it's the Hebrew letter Het. And um, so each stanza in this section would have started with that letter. And so we can't obviously see that in English. It doesn't look that beautiful, but this is a beautiful piece of poetry. And this, this poem, Psalm 119, is all about the Word of God, the decrees of God, the ways of God, the commands of God. And this is what it says in verse 59. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. So he starts out by saying, when I think on my ways. And that's what we're doing these next few weeks. We're we're putting a filter on. We're thinking about what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the things that we're doing. Most of us don't do that very often. We wait till kind of big moments in our lives. We, uh, you know, crisis will make us examine our ways when things are going really, you know, really poorly and things are not are coming together. We'll think, am, am I living the kind of life that I want to live? Or if there's some kind of tragedy, some kind of death in the family, something like that, we'll think about their life. And then we instinctively start thinking about our lives. Uh, whenever you're around somebody who lives differently than you, but they live better, you ever been around people like that who, you know, not that they have more things than you, but like they just seem to have more joy and more life and more peace. And you're around those people and you're thinking, well, what are, what are they doing that I'm not doing? We'll think about our ways then. But we usually kind of save it up for these random big moments in our lives. But if we are followers of Jesus, if God has done a work in our lives, then we need to think about our ways way more often than just every once in a while. In fact, that was the one of the primary messages of the Old Testament prophets. The, the book of Haggai, Haggai's message was a very short message to Israel, just two chapters. But in those two chapters, five different times he encourages them to consider their ways. And that's what the psalmist is saying. When I think about my ways, when I think on my ways, then he says, I turn my feet to your testimonies. So he immediately transitions from, I'm thinking about my ways, to I'm thinking about your ways, God. So it's not enough just to think about our ways. That's just the first step. We think about our ways, we consider our ways, and then we consider them in the light of God's ways. I turn my feet to your testimonies. That's different than turning my ears to your testimonies. Or I'm turning my head to your testimonies. Because sometimes someone will say something to you, and you will turn and you will acknowledge them. You will hear what they're saying. But it doesn't mean that you turn your feet Towards them. Turning your feet towards them means I hear what you're saying and I am doing what you're saying. See, this psalmist, he has a posture of predetermined obedience. He's not waiting to, to see what it is God has going to say. He's already turned his feet. There's not a big separation between what he hears from God and how he obeys God. It's a posture of predetermined obedience. Uh, my daughter, Annabeth, she's four years old. I tell you about her all the time. She's wonderful and amazing and beautiful. Uh, but she's four, so she's not perfect. I don't know. Maybe your children were perfect at four, and uh, God bless you. And uh, you're probably not going to be able to relate to anybody here if that's true. But, uh, but she's wonderful. She's just not perfect. And sometimes at night she'll be playing with her toys. She's got this puzzle that she'll kind of sprawl out all over the floor and put it together, kind of one of them big floor puzzles, you know. And, um, and uh, it, it's getting close to bedtime, and I'll say, Annabeth, you need to pick your puzzle up, put it in the box, because it's time to go to bed. we got to you know, get you ready for bed. And, and she'll look at me, 
And then she'll look down at her puzzle. And then she'll look at me again. And back down at her puzzle. And, and she's four, so she, she doesn't like hide her facial expressions. So you can kind of see into her brain. And, and she's a fairly strong child. She's going to be make a, a fantastic leader one day. She's sometimes hard to deal with right now when she's four. It's going to be amazing one day. We're working through it right now. And, and so you can see on her face what, what she's deciding is, am I going to listen to you? You know, I, I get that you're my father, and, and I hear what you're saying, Dad. I hear what you're saying. Pick it up, and let's go to bed. But I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. And, and I, listen, I would judge her and get mad at her, and, except for I do the same thing. We kind of wait to see if what God is saying and what we are living, to see if they fit together. We're all looking for convenient obedience. Yeah, if God is saying something that I would say, or if God is suggesting something that I think is a really great thing and fits with my life, then of course I'm going to obey. Because it just works. That's who I am. That's what I do. It's, it's nice. It, it, it flows with who I am and my pattern of living. But sometimes he'll say things that don't flow with my pattern of living. They don't fit. And we have to decide, am I going to obey? Or am I just going to keep doing what I want to do? See, most of us, we obey, and we have this, this facade and this exterior of righteousness. But it's only because we're obeying in the areas that feel right to us. But when an area of obedience comes that is in conflict with our culture or in conflict with our flesh, then it's much harder to obey. And so we just kind of stick to the areas of convenient obedience. And listen, nobody's the wiser. They think we're just a righteous living kind of person and we're happy that they think that but the problem is is that the scripture says that God is sanctifying us through and through meaning he's not just wanting to sanctify and set apart as holy and uh, the the areas of your lives that are convenient and easy the obedience that comes natural he wants all of us through and through to be set apart sanctified transformed into the image of Jesus so that when somebody looks at our life not just the areas that we push forward, but if somebody did an audit of all of our lives, they would be able to say, listen, I think every area of that guy's life or that woman's life is very similar to the way of Jesus. But we will never get there if we are fine with just obeying when it's convenient and we deal with the fallout of disobedience and the harder stuff. We'll never be sanctified through and through. But the psalmist says, no, I, I consider my ways and I turn my feet towards your testimonies. I don't just turn my ears and I don't just turn my, my head. I turn my feet. I, I want to do it. I'm already submitted to you, God, before I even hear what it is you're asking. Then look what he says next. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. If you were going to write something down this, this morning, I think this would be a good thing to write down just in the margin of your Bible or on a scrap piece of paper. When we delay our obedience, we will rarely obey. When we delay our obedience, we rarely obey. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. You ever said the words... I meant to. How many of you just show of hands this morning? This is all skate, everybody. I meant to. Yeah. I love how some of you rebel against that. It's fantastic. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not raising my hand. Ugh. Ugh. Cool. I came here to sit. 
We all say, uh, you know, hey, I meant to. The thing I, I say I meant to most often is uh, the trash, taking out the trash to the curb. You know what I'm talking about? Ours comes on Tuesdays and Fridays. And, you know, sometimes on Monday nights, you know, I mean to take out the trash, but I accidentally fall asleep in the floor of our living room. And then, you know, when I'm waking up, I'm tired and I'm ready to go to bed. I'm not like, oh, let me just take this, you know, five minutes to take the trash out and go outside when it's cold or hot. Either one. It's never in between here. It's either cold or hot. You know, and, and so I think, what? Oh, I'll do it in the morning. Well, then you wake up in the morning, and we're trying to get the kids ready. I'm trying to get me ready, which is obviously very hard. It takes me forever to do my hair. And, you know, it's, uh, I'm just, it's frantic, and breakfast is coming. And, and so by the time that Jackson and I are in, our, uh, in my car, and I'm taking him to school, I'm getting ready to take him to school, I'm sitting in the driveway, and this is like an every Tuesday or every Friday thing. I'm looking at where the trash is supposed to be, but I'm in the car already, and we're not like super early all the time, and so it's like, should I make Jackson late to set out the trash? No, you know, I'll get it the next time. And, and I really do mean to take out the trash. It's not some sinister plan, you know, that to, to let garbage pile up in my garage, you know, like that's not what I'm trying to do. But me meaning to take out the trash and not doesn't prevent the, the garbage from piling up in our garage. It's there. Because I meant to is about the most hollow phrase in the English vocabulary. I mean, has anybody ever been comforted by, I meant to? No, the only person who's comforted by I meant to is the person who is saying, I meant to. I meant to work less so I could be with my family more. I meant to be the kind of dad that was gentle and not angry. I meant to read the Bible. I meant to be the kind of person who prayed. I meant to be an every week kind of church person. I meant to start this. I meant to stop that. I meant to break that addiction. I meant to good intentions but they're hollow they're hollow and this is our flesh the twisted broken part of us it's fine with I meant to it's fine with delaying obedience in fact what your flesh wants to do it wants to procrastinate obedience to a future day so some of us, we've been procrastinating obedience so long, we've got some future day out there when we're just going to turn into a different person. Because, oh, I mean to be that kind of person. I mean to do this. I mean to do this. Like there's going to come some magical day when you're just going to suddenly be transformed into the kind of person who does all those things that you've been meaning to do for years. Because what your flesh will do is it will, be, it will take its convenience. It will take its ease at this moment. And it will store up difficulty for later. And Satan is against us in this way. I want you to take your Bible and turn to two places. Luke chapter 22 and Matthew chapter 27. Luke chapter 22 and Matthew chapter 27. So our, our flesh wants us to procrastinate our obedience, to push it off for some future day. And, and Satan, he, he actually wants that too. Satan's goal is to steal, kill, 
and destroy. And so he's fine with you intending on doing the right thing one day as long as destruction still happens. That's what he does to Judas. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. We've talked about Judas a lot in the last month or two leading up into Easter. Judas had all kinds of human brokenness. He had his own human agenda. But anytime your human agenda and your fleshly agenda lines up with the agenda of Satan, you need to watch yourself because you're opening doors to the enemy for him to come and have influence in your life. And that's why it says that Satan entered into Judas. It doesn't mean that Judas was totally innocent and then... Satan entered him and he did all those bad things. No, Judas was already twisted and had an evil agenda of his own. Satan just came to make sure that that agenda came through. Now turn to Matthew chapter 27. So Judas, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. It meant that Jesus was going to die. When he saw that, he, look at this, changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. I never noticed that. I've never noticed that it said that he changed his mind. Which is more than just, oh, you know what? I, I was looking out for me and Jesus kind of got caught in it and I feel bad that he got caught in it. I mean, we've all had that kind of, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry that you're dealing with the consequences of my choice. I'm not sorry that I made that choice. I'm just sorry that you're having to deal with it. That's not what Judas did. It says he changed his mind. That he saw that Jesus was going to be condemned to death and he realizes, oh no, I made a terrible mistake. And he goes to try to do the right thing. But it was too late. At this moment, he wanted to do the right thing, but the destruction had already happened and he couldn't take it back. Listen, Satan is fine with you intending on doing the right thing one day. He just doesn't want you to do it today. Because if he can reap havoc today through your delayed obedience, then he will. will. And look, I mean, Satan enters him and has maximum influence over Judas's life when Judas goes to agree to betray Jesus. But then as soon as it's done and Jesus has been condemned, Satan leaves him. And now Judas is left to deal with the fallout all alone. Listen, Satan will hold your hand and walk you into disobedience, but he is gone and will not help you navigate the consequences. Because he wants you to reap destruction on somebody else, and then he loves to then watch those he has used be destroyed themselves. Judas wanted to do the right thing, but it was too late. He delayed his obedience. He did not hasten the way he should. Because there is a momentum to obedience and disobedience. I want you to turn 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's a momentum to obedience, meaning there, there's a moment when you get these inclinations in your heart and in your mind that you should do something, you should do the right thing. And sometimes you follow through with those and sometimes you don't. Like, for example, you might be sitting on your couch. This happened to me yesterday. It was a, it was a kind of a lazy Saturday morning. Amanda had been, uh, was gone in the morning and so the kids and I are just relaxing and they're watching cartoons and I'm sitting on the couch. And normally my mornings are kind of ordered and you know, a part of those ordering is just coming and trying to be before the Lord in the scripture and praying. But it was Saturday morning and we had been kind of lazy and so I hadn't done that yet. And I'm sitting on the couch watching cartoons and I just get this inclination in my heart like, you should go and do that. You should go and do your normal thing. Get into the scripture. You need to go and pray. You need to do your, your normal thing. And you may have experienced that. You get that inclination. And sometimes maybe we follow through. And then other times it's like, no, this is like a super great cartoon and I want to see how it ends. Or, hey, I'll do it later. You know, it's, it's like Saturday. I won't be tempted today. It's Saturday. Satan and my flesh take the day off. It's vacation. And if you deny that inclination, it might come back a few times while you're sitting on the couch, but eventually it'll go away, doesn't it? And hopefully it comes back to you the next day or something later, but eventually it will go away because there's a momentum to obedience and there's a momentum to disobedience. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I mean, we've all been tempted in the same ways. Whatever you're going through, it may not be the exact situation, but somebody else has been tempted in a similar way. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I mean, how grace-giving is that, that God meets us even in our temptation? And provides a way of escape for us. He doesn't leave us alone to be tempted. He always gives us an off-ramp. He always gives us an exit. But that exit usually comes quick. And it comes early. Because there is a momentum to disobedience. The longer you resist that off-ramp, the less likely you are to obey. I mean, you've probably heard temptation described as a hallway before. It's not original to me. But if you'll pretend with me this morning that temptation is just, just a long hallway. The first stop you come to in that hallway, and let's just use for hypothetical situation because we all know what this would like. We've seen it on TV, but um, a flirtatious relationship that you might have with, with somebody that you shouldn't have a flirtatious relationship with. Somebody at work, a friend, maybe you're a single person and that person's married. Just a kind of an inappropriate flirtatious relationship. Just set that on the table. We've all seen that in movies and I think we can imagine that this morning, but we could pick anything. We could pick clicking on something on the internet. We could pick something as simple as gossip. We could pick uh, being addicted to painkillers. We could pick anything, but any kind of temptation, we'll just use this flirtatious relationship this morning. That first stop in the hallway is that moment in temptation when you know what is right and what is wrong. It's just clear to you. So in our hypothetical example, that first time you think, 
I, th I think they're flirting with me. I don't think it's that they're just friendly and sanguine and happy and they're with that. But I, th I, like, I think they're flirting with me. And you know in that moment, there is a right and there is a wrong. The right thing to do is just reject it totally deep into your soul. The wrong thing is to just receive it a little bit. Not that you sought it out, but it feels good because maybe you've not been getting that kind of attention at home. Or maybe you're single and you're kind of lonely and nobody's paying that attention to you, that kind of attention to you. So you just kind of receive it a little bit, even though that's, that's not good. That stop in the hallway, that moment that you know what is right and what is wrong, it is a door in the hallway. That's not just a door. It's like one of those sliding double doors, you know, that when you walk close to it, it flings open for you and there are exit signs everywhere. That is your clear way of escape out of that temptation. You realize right and wrong and you look to the left and it is clear the way out of this situation. But we don't always take that door out, do we? And so we travel a little bit farther down this hallway of temptation. And the next stop you get to is just, just imagining what would happen if you did the wrong thing. You're not committing to it either way. You're just imagining, you know, what would happen if you, if you did kind of fall through and you just keep, did keep walking down this, this temptation. What would happen? What would the fallout be? Could I keep it a secret? Who would know about it? What would they do about it when they found out about it? What would I lose? What would it cost me? What would I gain? You're just imagining this, the different scenarios. You're not saying you're going to do the wrong thing. You're just imagining what it would be like. And that door is not two double sliding doors with exit signs. Now it's just a regular door. It's still a door. You can get out, no problem. But it's just not quite as big and obvious as the last door. But we keep traveling down the hallway of this temptation. And the next place you get to is just a place where you're non-committal. You're not saying you're going to do the wrong thing, but you're not sure you're going to do the right thing either. You're just going to be in the moment and see what happens. So our example, it, it would be you're not going to instigate the flirting. But if they flirted back, you might do the, your part in the dance. You're not going to walk by their desk, but if you... If they walked by your desk, you wouldn't complain. You're just going to see what happens. And now at this stop, it's not the double sliding doors with the exit signs, and it's not even a regular door anymore. Now it's a window. It's still a pretty big window, and you'll be able to get out of it, no problem, but you're going to have to climb out of it and not walk through it. The next stop, if you kept walking down the hallway at this point, would be that, that moment where you decide, I'm going to walk towards the line, but I'm not going to actually cross the line. I'm going to walk towards it because I got a rush and I kind of want to see where this goes and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but what I'm going to tell myself to make myself feel good that I'm walking closer and closer towards the wrong thing is that I'm not actually going to do the wrong thing. When it comes to the last moment, I'm going to pull myself up out of it. So I'm going to meet them at the gym so we can work out because I'm trying to burn calories. I'm trying to look fit. That's what God wants me to do. And it's nice to have a workout partner to encourage me and I'm encouraging them. And it's just fun conversations. And we, we, yeah, so we spend a couple of nights a week together, but it's at the gym and it's at this safe environment. 
I mean, yeah, sure, we're asking and saying things like, man, wouldn't it have been, wouldn't it have been great if we had met each other years ago before we were kind of in this situation we're now in? Wouldn't it have been something special if we would have been in that kind of scenario? And I'm complaining about my husband, and I'm complaining about my wife, and they're complaining about their situation. This is the point where we start justifying it. Well, hey, I'm single, I'm not married, and they're married, but their marriage is falling apart. His wife doesn't love him, and, and they're going to get divorced anyway. And so, yeah, the beginning of our relationship may be all kind of messy, but God will bless it in the long run. And now what was a double sliding glass door that turned into a door that turned into a window is now a much smaller window, and it's a little bit higher. I think you can probably still get out of that window if you wanted to, but it's going to take a lot of work. And the next stop, it's I'm going to cross the line, but I'm only going to cross it one time. And maybe if I just cross it one time, all this momentum towards doing the wrong thing that's on my back, maybe it will alleviate and I can recover. And what was double sliding doors with an exit sign that turned into a door, that turned into a large window, that turned into a smaller high window is now a very small high window that you couldn't crawl out of yourself. You need somebody to get in there with you and lift you up out of it. But by the time most of us get to that place, we're like, I already crossed the line. This train has left the station. I just might as well ride it. I don't know, many of us are like, well, that would never happen to me because I have a secret weapon, my willpower. You don't know me. I know you're a pastor and maybe you know a lot of people with weak willpower, but you don't know me. When it comes down to the moment of doing the right thing and the wrong thing, I have a strong enough will to do the right thing. So I can be in some very wrong situations, but you can trust me and my ability to hold myself together that I'm going to do the right thing. Listen, I can't speak for you, but I don't have a, the willpower to not order a cheeseburger. When I get into the line, it's salad with chicken, no dressing. And by the time I get up to the line, it is a double cheeseburger. I don't know how that happens. Willpower. Listen, you can't resist eating certain kinds of food, you think you're going to be able to resist this moment where every ounce of your flesh is crying out to do the wrong thing? You think you're going to be able to recover from that? When not only do you have everything in you wanting to do the wrong thing, now you're in a situation that you're so stuck in, even if you stopped at this moment, you'd still be in a ton of trouble. And you've got Satan in your ear whispering all kinds of lies, and you know that he's right, but you don't see any way out. You think you're going to be able to hold yourself together in that moment? Some of us are addicted to television shows and addicted to our cups of coffee and our Dr. Pepper in the morning. You think that you're going to be able to resist an addiction to alcohol or addiction to those painkillers that your doctor prescribed to you when you hurt your back? You think you're going to be able to resist that kind of addiction? Man, you know what willpower is? Willpower is the last thing that you wave goodbye to on your way to sin. 
It's not a stop and it's not a fence. It's an illusion for most of us. And that momentum builds at our backs the longer we wait to obey. So take the double doors with the exit sign the moment that you know right and wrong. I love the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. You know Zacchaeus, they, they wrote a song about him. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Lord passed by that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, won't you come down? I'm going to your house today. Well, that's where the song ends, but that's not where the story ends. This is a powerful story. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was very rich, which meant in the city that he lived in, Jericho, he was at the top of this tax pyramid. So everyone who was taxed by all those tax collectors that worked underneath Zacchaeus, a portion of their tax ended up in Zacchaeus's pocket. And then he would pass on some token to the Roman Empire. And so he was a hated man. And not only was he hated, he was, he was probably evil and twisted. It wasn't just he had an unfortunate job. He signed up for this job to take from his own people to fund the occupation by enemy forces of his own country. But Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus and, and heard that Jesus was coming through Jericho. And Jericho would not have been some massive city. It would have been a small city in the first century with one main road running through the middle of it. And so all these people are lined up on the side of the road to get a look at Jesus. Jesus was very popular. He was also very controversial. And so Zacchaeus wanted to see him. And so he goes to the parade line and he can't see over because he's very short. So he climbs up in a tree, which, you know, every man would enjoy if no one was looking. But when people are looking, that would be kind of humiliating, wouldn't it? And it seems like something a kid would do, but this is a grown man who's so insignificant and short that he can't see over people. He has to climb a tree. And, and if you were making a list of people who Jesus would want to spend his brief moments with in Jericho, based on righteousness and godliness, Zacchaeus is at the very end of that list. At the very top of that list is the ruler of the synagogue and the Pharisees. Zacchaeus is probably behind the prostitutes and the sinners. That's how far outside of righteousness he was. But what is the story? The story is Jesus comes through and he stops at Zacchaeus' tree and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And he doesn't just say, come down. He says in Luke chapter 19, he says, hurry and come down. For I want to go to your house. Not, I want to go to your house to have a religious visit so I can straighten you out. Like, I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to eat with you. And so it says in Luke chapter 19 that Zacchaeus hurries comes down and receives him joyfully. I don't know why you're here today. I don't know why you come to church if this is your first time. 
or you come every time. I don't know what motivation you have for coming to church, but I, I would guess that even though many of us have mixed motives for here, duty or you know tradition or routine or whatever, but when you funnel it down and you strip all those mixed motives away, I would guess most of us are here because of Jesus in some way, that you believe he saves people, he, you believe he's taking you to heaven, you believe that he's Lord, or you, you're just here because maybe you're thinking about it and you're checking it out and you're investigating it for yourself. I guess most of us are here at the bottom of our list of reasons for Jesus. But it wouldn't have made very much sense for Zacchaeus to go to the parade to see Jesus and then for Jesus to stop and look up at him and say, I want you to come down because I want to go to your house. And Zacchaeus go, no, no, I'm good. Why? Because he came for Jesus. He came to see Jesus. And if Jesus and our faith in him is the foundation and the cornerstone of everything we've built our lives on, it doesn't make any sense for him to say, hurry to us, and then not to hurry. If he says, do not hasten, then we should hasten. Do not delay, and we shouldn't delay. Because part of the filter is doing the right thing and doing it quickly. Because I don't care how strong your willpower is when you have the momentum of your flesh behind you. It's hard. It's hard to resist the longer you walk down that hallway. And let's not be people who end up being haunted by the words I'm meant to. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it cuts to the core of us. It splits between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. So I pray that we would just receive whatever work it is you're doing in us today. I pray that... I would be the kind of person who would obey and obey quickly. I pray that for us. I pray that for us, Jesus. We're thankful for your goodness. We're thankful for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray.